Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutrunCancer.org. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU News. Three recent mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, El Paso, Texas, and Gilroy, California have left at least 31 people dead, and have, they have shaken the country. These, these events and others like them are taking a toll on America's feelings of safety and security. Survey of uh, American Fear says fear of random or mass shooting is the fastest-growing fear among adults in the country. We're going to talk about uh, these issues and more with uh, three guests today. Sergeant Kurt Dernal from the Indiana State Police. He's the public information officer. We're going to be joined on the phone uh, momentarily by Sean Lamb, a Richmond, Indiana musician who was uh, very up close for the Dayton shooting, and Jody Madeira, who's an IU Mauer School of Law professor. You can follow us on the program uh, by uh, just going to Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So, uh, Kurt and Jody, it's great to have you back. Kurt, we're going to have lots of things to talk about today. And, yeah. and Jody, you've, you you are an expert in the Second Amendment also. Yes. Right? That's one of, the, one of your key areas. I want to, uh, to bring in uh, Sean Lamb now because, Sean, your story is pretty compelling. I mean, you were, uh, you're, you're with the, the – you are uh, the lead of the Sean Lamb Band, correct? That is correct. That is correct. Yeah, and you were performing uh, in Dayton at uh, Tumbleweeds on uh, the night of the shooting. And can you just talk about, you know, what, what your feelings were like, what, what you went through? What, what did you witness? You know, it's, it's crazy because my initial thought, being downtown Dayton, you know, it's a busy area. We all know that. Uh, when someone said somebody was shooting initially, I thought it was just two guys maybe out back fighting over, you know, who knows what, like guys do sometimes, shooting at each other. Um, but then you kind of heard the gunshots and realized that, you know, maybe something else was going on too. So, uh, uh, and I was, I think I was okay. I, I was okay with it when I thought it was just two guys like shooting at each other. But as we were on our way home and we found out that it was actually like, you know, a shooter had intent on, on maybe hurting a lot of people. Then it just had a, a whole different ominous, uh, uh umbrella over it there. Yeah, and just to to set the the stage, I mean, you so you were performing at the Tumbleweed Connection, and that uh, I'm under the impression, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's the bar that the shooter was trying to get into. There's some video of him making that turning that corner, trying to go inside a bar when he was actually shot by authorities. Is that right? Well, that bar that bar he was trying to get into was Ned Pepper's. Uh, how our bar got into it as he was spraying gunfire through the street. Um, he hit someone who then sought refuge inside our bar, and she was just bleeding profusely and just ran straight to the back of the bar. Tried to get back there as, as soon as she as soon as she could, but uh, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, she ended up not making it. Right. So, what uh, you know, what, what was it, what was the chaos like? You know, after after you did realize you know what was happening when when she ran into the inside the bar, what was it, what was it like to be in the middle of that? Even even after she had come inside the bar, we weren't sure what happened. Um, uh, it wasn't until they took her out. Uh, we saw uniformed men. I'm, now, I don't know if they're firemen, paramedics, police officers. I just knew they had uniforms. And um, they got her out there uh, on the front sidewalk, and then everyone kind of realized, you know, the gunshots had been over for a little bit. So we kind of went outside to kind of survey the damage to see what happened. And that's where we just saw, I mean, it was just, it was chaos. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a war zone. Unlike anything I'd ever seen. Yeah. So I want to ask Kurt Dernal, Sergeant Kurt Dernal from the Indiana State Police. So 
you know, in a, in a situation like that, what's what's a person like Sean to do? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, so unfortunate and so tragic that now, Bob, we have to think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can't just go out on the town and and be in a band or or, or take your family out to dinner and and not think about things like this and think if something like this were to happen, what would I do? What should I do? Um, where are the places that I can hide? Um, you know, as as police officers, and this is kind of a curse that we have as police officers, we think this way a lot. I don't I don't take my family out without you know my back is never to the door. You know that type of thing. I'm always looking to see who's coming in and and what they're doing. If I'm in a grocery store, I'm looking at people who aren't looking at the items to buy. You know, I'm thinking what I'm looking for things that are wrong, the things that look suspicious. And unfortunately, I think that's where we are now in this current climate of we need folks to be looking for things that look suspicious. What is wrong with this picture? We're supposed to be here having a good time at the bar and this guy's doing something else. Um, so it's just things that, that we need to think about. Um, we've got some choices. You know, uh, I think most of us are unarmed when we go into public settings like this. So we have to be thinking about what are we going to do as an unarmed response, whether that's Hide, run, fight, whatever it is, we need to be thinking about that and, and stuff. Like I've, I've already thought about stuff right here in the studio. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I want to bring Jody Madera in here. So, you know, you, you see it from various perspectives. You're a law school professor. You're a Second Amendment uh, expert. You're a parent. Um, you know, when you hear about these mass shootings, I mean, where does your mind go? Uh, it sort of goes everywhere. And I think, you know, what my mind frame is when I'm going about my business each day and when I'm teaching class and when we're in the thick of things in a very heated discussion or a passionate defense of a law or attack on a law, we're not thinking about who could come through that door. And so I think we don't we're not used to living in a constant state of vigilance. And those who do, it really takes an effect on our bodies. Mm-hmm. We got a question on Facebook, Pam. It says, Women suffer from mental health issues, yet mostly men are the culprits of these mass shootings. Can we really blame mental health issues, or is there something more to look at? That's a really good point, because that seems like one of the first things we do is say we need— well, and President Trump did it this did it this week, saying we really need to focus on mental health. Well, yeah, let me—, let me say, we'll ask our panel to, to answer this. Let me say we, we are going to have a mental health expert on the show in the second half of the program, so we can talk about the— that more than, and I think I, I think to frame this discussion, mental health is a couple of different issues. It's mental health of the people that perpetrate these crimes, but also our own mental health. So, yeah, you know, um, Jody, you want to try to react to that question? Sure. Now, it's a very common, uh, almost an. Uh, a very common assertion, it's become a truism, that those who commit these sorts of acts are mentally ill. And perhaps they are. Often they don't have a diagnosis, but that huge, has a huge effect on stigmatizing those individuals who do have mental health disorders in the general population, because very, very few mentally ill individuals actually are violent. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, it, it makes one wonder how many people knew about the, these behaviors before this, these events happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, you know, they'll say, well, they acted alone, they acted alone, they acted alone. But how many people actually knew that this was their type of behavior beforehand? How many people knew that they had access to weapons or had weapons? Mm-hmm. In the, you know, again, this is all part of the see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And this comes back to the fact, you know, of what is legal, what is illegal, and what is normative. Because if I know that my neighbor sort of acts like he has a mental illness, but he has a lot of weapons and sort of is stalking me, I might make a complaint about that. But until he has a record or until he's an improper person to carry, I can't get his guns taken away under a red flag law. And so there's a real, I think, slippery slope and caution about how we take weapons away and what's the triggers. And and that's a conversation we need to have as a society. No question about so, it. Sean, Sean Lamb, I want to bring you back in. Um, so, you know, you've had a few days to reflect on this and you were... You know, you were in, you know, sort of ground zero of one of these shootings. So how how has it had an effect on your mental health and your, uh, you know, the way you you view life? Um, I tell you, it's uh, first of all, it's made me view uh, shootings totally different. You know, I'm always so focused on the victim and focused on the families. I never even before thought about all the people that, you know, uh, that made it out. You know, I just do. I assume since they made it out. They were thankful, they were happy, and they went on with their lives. But I'm slowly learning 
that uh, myself as, as as well as everyone in my band you know and i don't want to pull a guilt trip wagon here but uh it's been tough you know and uh we we made we made some friends that we made met in dayton that night we have just had a, a a huge circle kind of a community checking on each other and at first i thought well maybe i'm just taking this too hard you know maybe i'm just taking it too personal but um to find out everyone kind of felt the same way i did now that's not to say that we're afraid to go back out in public, you know, because uh, just because it was Dayton, it could have been it could have been anywhere. It could have been right here at my home in Richmond. It could have been in Bloomington. It could have been anywhere. So I, I don't want it to let it turn me into a hermit. But uh, I like was said earlier, I'm going to spend a whole lot less time with my back facing the door. You know, I'm going to be a lot more alert. Uh, uh, I have a radio show here in Richmond. We actually had a police officer in the studio and I pulled him aside after the show and I said, what what can I do? It's like I, I want to be more prepared now. Uh, what what can I do? Because I, I had no clue. You know, all I knew was uh, cover my head and try not to get shot. You know, so. Mm-hmm. so I saw one of the TV interviews with you and you, you know, you have a, a wife and a, a young child, too. So, you know, that had to have an impact on on you and thinking about your relationship with them, I would think. Yeah, uh, we all kind of have this understanding that uh, we have a bond now that no one else will understand, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that uh, we're, we're the people we come to to talk to about it because we found that, uh, you know, our friends, and we know they mean well, and they just say, ah, oh, man, I know what you're going through. That must have been so scary. But there's something that is more comforting about talking to someone that was there and it was mm-hmm. kind of, you know, there with you. And so uh, that, that's just what we've been trying to do. We're just trying to be there for each other. Uh, tonight will be my first night back on stage since it happened, and uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's the first time I've 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 all have seen my band in person, and there's been such a, a kind of a, a buzz about it around town. I know there's going to be people there, and there's they're going to be passing their sympathies on. So it's just kind of dealing with that. We're just ready to kind of round that corner, just get back to some normalcy, if there is some normalcy to get back to. Okay, Jody. Yes, um, I think what is described there is something that people have seen in a lot of even terrorist events back to Oklahoma City, the Boston bombing, and that's the phenomenon of survivor guilt. And those of us in society who have never experienced anything like this really expect life to be normal afterwards. But there's a new normal that happens for people like this, and they are part of a club that no one else wants to belong to. And I think that's absolutely true. That's that's a, the unfortunate reality. Kurt, I think you've probably face that with, within the police department, too. Yeah, there's been situations, you know, that that, that uh, really no one else, just like he was saying, no one else can relate to. And, you know, you, they will pass along their, their sympathies. Hey, I, I know what you're going through, that type of thing. And you want to say, no, you don't really. <laughs> not not really. But uh, but it is nice of them to, to try and comfort you and stuff like that. So, But there's definitely clubs that you don't want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Sean, do you want to add something? Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much it, yeah, you know, okay. uh, it's, it's nothing that we want to go through, but yeah. at the same point in time, you know, I'm thankful that I did have friends of mine that were there with me because if my friends were there, I would have nobody to talk to. Mm-hmm. I, I would have, you know, I would just be doing this by myself and it's, uh, not fun. What do you think that people who haven't lived through something like this or, or misunderstand? Um, that even though the shooter necessarily wasn't in my building pointing his gun at me, uh, it still struck the same amount of fear, uh, the, the same amount of, uh, uh, oh, my gosh, are, are, are we going to get out of this, you know? Uh, uh, and, and, and that's the thing. I, I've tried not to point too much light to our situation because I know there were people out there running in the street. I know there's people out there that made eye contact with this guy that was holding the gun. So it's, it's hard for me to, to make it sound like my situation was just uh, terrible. And, 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 you know, we saw our fair share of stuff. But uh, I know how much I'm hurting for this. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine those people that were so much closer, what they're going through. And and let me tell you, there was a lot of them. There was a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Now, as I understand it, you're scheduled to play back at uh, the the same bar, right, in uh, like a I month or so? September. September? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you don't, you're not having any second thoughts about that, are you, at this point? Uh, no, because for now, I want to be there for the people that were there. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I, I respect the people that run where I play over there and, and they went back to work and I feel like I would be doing them some kind of disservice or maybe letting them down if I didn't come back. And, uh, I already told my band, if there's, if there's one of you that doesn't feel comfortable in doing this, where are the all going or none of us? And I would never hold that against any of them. Cause I understand. I totally understand that 100%. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call. So, uh, let's go to Sarah on the phone, Sarah. Hi, 
Okay. Uh, mass shootings are uh, spectacular, and um, they get a lot of media coverage, and they're very politically charged uh, as to the solution. Uh, however, I think as far as Americans fear in general, that Americans are specifically more likely to be victims of crime, violence in general, uh, with or without guns. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I was a victim of crime twice. My mother was a victim of crime and my sister was a victim of an attempted sexual assault. None of these crimes were committed with guns. Um, why not just address violence in general and all violence? Um, it just seems like people fear of being a victim of mass shooting. Well, statistically, they're probably more likely to be a victim of just violence in general, so-called random crime. And I just wondered what the panelists thought of that. All right. Well, uh, Jody, you want to go first? I think mass shootings have a tremendous role to play in the American public imagination right now because we're told how to avoid rape. We're told how to avoid sexual assault. We're told how to avoid being a victim of identity theft or of carjackings. And yet we're not told how to not be a victim of a mass shooting. And so we're even told how to avoid other, you know, gun-related accidents such as safe, you know, safe storage and things like that. But I think this is something that feels truly random. And I think it's terrifying for people regardless of how infrequently it occurs. Exactly. Random and, and just logistically speaking, so much easier really to force that terror, to force that mass casualties on, on folks with weapons. Uh, like you were saying, we're taught how to avoid certain things, but it, it's very hard to uh, avoid a bullet. You know, when one's coming at you, you can't get to that person. You can't hide quick enough. You can't run quick enough. I think that's what the problem is right there. And I think, too, we have uh, a sort of learned helplessness around the issue of mass shootings because we're told that we can't take guns away from mentally ill individuals. Our president signs bills making it harder for us to take guns away from mentally ill individuals. And I think there's a questions about how we talk about firearms in society. And so that that adds sort of to this layer of helplessness we have. So I'm really curious about that. I mean, how do you talk about this? Because it feels like immediately we launch into this, well, it's my, it's my right to have a gun. Um, or I, 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 don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like we can get past the politics of it to actually talk about what's happening and have a meaningful discussion. And the irony about that is that if you look at, for example, banning so-called assault weapons, you know, guns like the AR-15, uh, semi-automatic rifles with certain physical characteristics like pistol grips or flash suppressor, suppressors, um, what goes on is that when courts address these bans, they upheld, they upheld them every single time. And so although the courts robustly defend our right to place reasonable restrictions on firearms, there is this sense of the public that... They have to be everywhere, that they cannot have limitations. We have laws saying municipalities can't regulate firearms. Doctors can't talk about firearms. That one was ruled unconstitutional. But we're in the process of, you know, legislating discourse about firearms out of society. So what kind of limitations can you reasonably put? I mean, because how is this Second Amendment not an absolute, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a question of keeping firearms out of the hands of people who don't have any reason to have a firearm and not just no reason but can't can't equip themselves can't train themselves can't be proficient can't be safe or don't have the mental capacity to own a, a firearm is that is that close yes absolutely uh, you know i mean where do you where do we put, draw that line to make sure that those people don't and that the good people do mm-hmm. where where do we go from there yeah. well, how do we do that mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know that in uh, a piece that you wrote shortly after um, Parkland, I think, you talked about how the the discussions were becoming, these were your words, poisonous and polarizing. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, after, it seems like, and I, I could be wrong, but it seems like after this one, uh, maybe these two that happened right in a row, maybe there's more more willingness to sit down and try to come come to some common ground than the, there's been in, in past shootings. Am I wrong? Or Yes, I almost fell off my chair yesterday when the New York Times reported that Mitch McConnell had vaulted gun background checks to the head of legislation to be addressed. And I think that is the result of not only public clamor, but also the president signaling that he would not be likely to veto such legislation. So I think it's partly the public and partly the politics, and the two have to coincide in a way that they didn't after Newtown, in a way that they didn't after Parkland. And Democrats were calling on them to come back from their recess to talk about it, and McConnell said no, he wasn't going to do that. So I'm just... Does this really have a chance of moving somewhere this time, or is this 
kind of responding in the moment and then maybe it'll come up when they resume. I do think it has a chance of moving. I think the I think it's the tipping point. But then I said that after Newtown and I said that after Parkland. So maybe I'll be right. You know, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. <laughs> uh, Sean, I want to bring you back in before we take our, our halftime break. So, you know, again, you're in a unique, well, I think, I think uh, Kurt maybe mentioned this. Sometimes you don't want to be in a club like this, but you're in a club of people who have been sort of, you know, on the scene for something like this. I mean, do you have any any advice or any tips or, uh, I guess, just uh, reflections that you'd like to share that you haven't shared yet? Uh, as far as coping? Yeah, coping and preparing or, or, you know, can you ever be prepared for something like that? Uh, and, and that's the thing, you know, uh, and as far as prepared goes, uh, my, my uh, girl that sings with me, Janet, she says, you know, normally I carry a gun in my purse. I can't believe I didn't bring one. And I just can't help but thinking, what, what were you going to do if you did have one? Were we, it's like my, my whole band wasn't just going to hide behind her and say, okay, go get them, you know. So she feels guilty for that. And I, I just, you know, as far as preparing for it, I don't know if I have any good advice. Just keep your eyes open. Uh See something, say something. You know that's that's huge. That's that's important. Um, but as far as coping to it, uh, coping with it, reach out, talk to somebody. That's that's been. At first, I didn't want to talk about it. Every time I talked about it, I would be choked up. Someone would call, they'd ask me about it, and I would just lose all my emotions. But uh, I think through talking about it, I've gotten more. Uh, I don't want to say comfortable, but I've gotten more able rather to talk about it. It's funny because it went from. Um, in the beginning, I was I was real sad, and then I went th- I went through guilty, and now I'm going through this mad. I wake up and I'm mad, I, mad at the fact that any of it was able to happen. I, I you know I don't know why I'm mad, but uh, it's just part of the emotional thing, and I'm going to keep reaching out and, until I feel until I start to feel just a little bit normal again, you know. Yeah, well, you you haven't had much time to process everything, so uh, we appreciate your being on here with us today. We're going to have to take a short break. Um, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about some of the uh, lasting effects of of mass shootings that um, you know, and, and a lot of issues that come along with that. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with Sarah Whitmire, and we're talking about uh, the recent mass shootings and, uh, you know, what some of the uh, reactions that people are having to them, what not necessarily, you know, what can be done about them. But, you know, we'll talk about whatever issues that you want to bring up with us today. We have uh, in the studio Sergeant Kurt Dernal from the Indiana State Police and Jody Madera, an IU Maurer School of Law professor and an expert in the Second Amendment. Uh, we were joined by a phone during the first half of the program. I'm not sure if Sean's still with us or not, but Sean Lamb, who's a musician who's, who was there uh, at the Dayton shooting, but he's he joined us for the first half of the program, and and he won't be with us the second half. But we will will have with us uh, Leslie Ann Holvershorn, who is um, a psychiatrist, and she's been uh, she's dealt with a lot of issues. Um, about you know children and fears, and so we'll be talking with her in a minute too. We have a couple of phone calls though that we want to get to, and before we do, I want to give you our numbers. So eight one two eight five five zero eight one one. I think I think our couple of callers put their questions in off air, and we actually have Leslie who is on the line now. Oh, okay. So Leslie, go ahead. Hi, this is Leslie Holvershire. I'm the psychiatrist. Oh, uh, Leslie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Glad to, glad to have you on. So, what can you talk a little bit about 
uh, you know, the fears uh, that young people are having and what these mass shootings and, and um, you know, what, what's just what kind of what kind of um, fears are your kids having today? Yeah, so um, actually there's been a little bit of research on um, the fears of kids who aren't directly involved in the mass shootings themselves um, after the Columbine shooting in 1999. And so um, kids um, filled out some questionnaires in school um, before that shooting, and then the researchers found some other questionnaires they filled out after that, um, that shooting. And not surprisingly, kids were... Um, you know, more afraid of being at school, more afraid in general, um, you know, around safety. And that was, uh, the actual research was done back in 2002. So that was before really, um, you know, lot, before the frequency of shootings had increased like, like it has now. So I think we can only speculate that the fears have increased um, and um, become more prominent, especially as the numbers of shootings have increased and the number of victims in each shooting on average, I guess, have gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, that that's part of the problem. I also think that it's become clear probably to many adolescents, maybe not so many children, but to many adolescents that, um, that there, are, there are things that could be done about this, um, but they aren't necessarily being done. And so I think there's this concern among young people that, you know, how much do the adults in our, you know, in our lives, um, especially in leadership roles in the nation, care about us? And that's something that I hear when I speak with young people. Um, especially in the context of suicide. Um, you'll hear, uh, you know, you ask somebody, oh, I heard a kid in your school committed suicide, and um, I had a, a, a young person say, uh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, um, because actually the suicide rate is, is going up in um, adolescence in our nation in the, in the last five years. And so um, uh, one explanation when you speak to adolescents about why that is is there's just this tremendous mistrust of authority figures and adults who are sort of supposed to be caring for society and making, you know, making safe choices, making the you know, the world a safe place, um, and and they, I think the young people perceive that that's not happening. So it's the double whammy of um, being potentially shot when you're at school, but also knowing that the adults around you aren't working to protect you, and that is really demoralizing and creates a lot of um, feelings of like, you know. Uh, how can we go forward when this is our world kind of thing. Kurt, I want to get your response. Just how what – what is your response when people say, you know, the next shooting is really just inevitable? Yeah, it's, uh, it's sad to think that because it's a scary situation and what evidence do we have that they're not correct? Um, you know, the, 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 the shootings do keep happening. So what we try to do as, a, as an agency, a law enforcement agency, is to make sure that people know that they do. There are some choices. It's, it, it, if you're ever involved in this, it's obviously a very, very bad situation. But what can we do to make this very, very bad situation just a little bit better, maybe increase your chances of survival? And, and we actually go around the state and we talk to groups and civic community groups that, that want to know. And we go into businesses and we're going to schools. And, you know, you have officers who will just maybe stop by a school and just walk through. And then that's coming, becoming more and more common uh, nowadays to see a police officer in a school. Whereas before, I know when, when I was in school, if I saw a police officer at the school, something was really, really wrong. Somebody had done something really, really bad. Um, now, I don't think that's the case any, anymore, especially schools that have the student resource officers, but but most schools have been very inviting to us as an agency, telling us, hey, come on in anytime you want, walk through, say hi to the kids, eat lunch with us, whatever you want to do. I'm curious for just mm-hmm. both you and, and Leslie, how do you talk to kids? What is the right way so that you don't just scare them to death? Or maybe jo- uh, Jody and Leslie. <laughs> Go ahead, Leslie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. There's not a really easy way around this. And, of course, it depends on the age to some degree, right? So young children have a really hard time processing this kind of information, whereas older people, you know, older kids who have access to news sources, you know, they they know what's going on. So um, I think uh, affirming their safety, their situation, uh, what they can do to stay as safe as possible, you know, helping them think through scenarios, what would they do, how could they be protected, um, and still remind them that the odds, you know, while it seems like we're just inundated in these things, the odds of still it happening to an individual person are still quite low. Um, yeah. And kind of reminding them of that fact. Yeah. I, I think another thing, too, you know, we, we've always been told to 
get down on their level physically. You know, take a knee and 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 comfort them and talk to them. And uh, I've I've always had a keen eye for for those kids who see me in a restaurant in full uniform. You know, I'm six foot six, with this smoky bear hat on. I'm seven foot tall, so I'm daunting to to them. But but I see them looking at me and looking at my badges and everything else, and and I'm pull out a ISP sticker for them. You know, and and say something about you know how how good they're being, or you know make sure you wear your seatbelt or something like that. But uh, I think parents can help us out. Two, you know, I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, parents will tell their kids in front of a police officer, if you don't behave, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to that police officer is going to take you to jail. And I'm going, oh, please don't say that. Please don't say that. You know, we don't need we don't need them being afraid of us when they need help. We need them running to us, you know, when when they need help. So um, so I'd ask, ask parents to please help us out with that. Mm-hmm. Jody. And I think we have to situate these conversations with children and with parents in in the context of a broader society where just this week, you know, officers apologized for leading an African-American man um, with a rope on horseback down a street. And and so there is this, you know, almost daily reminder of the conflict between those who wear uniforms and the rest of us, particularly communities of color, when that divide was not as strong there or even invisible in prior generations, um, at least to many communities. And so I think there's conversations to be made about culturally sensitive ways to reach out to different communities as well. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask Kurt to, to react to something Leslie said, you know, in talking about how, you know, young people are looking to adults and they're they're not they don't feel like adults are helping them mm-hmm. through this as much. And, yeah. you know, you're you've dedicated your career to trying to help people as, sure. a, as an Indiana State police officer. Yeah. Um, so what can you say to to like that generation? I'd encourage them to find somebody they trust. You know, whether that is a, uh, a teacher, a coach, um, somebody at their church, their civic organization, wh- wh- whoever they can get to that they trust, have a conversation with them and tell them what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, what they're going through. You know, a lot of times kids, you know, are, are just like us. A lot of times we don't want to talk about things because I don't want, Bob, I don't want you to know that I'm hurting over anything. I'm, you know, I'm a police officer. I'm, I'm, I'm totally good. You know, I don't need to talk to anybody. Kids are the same way. They don't want to say, they don't want people to think that they're weak or that they're not strong people. So find somebody that you trust and go from there. And then that person will lead you to somebody else that they trust and hopefully get the situation take care of. But talk to somebody. Don't, don't keep it inside. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is a Darren Burke is on the line. I think Darren has a question. Darren, did you have a question? Oh, okay. hello. Go ahead, Darren. I wondered what the panel thought of the Robert Reddington Laura Spear incident that involves guns and mental health. And it, I think Bob knows about it. It happened in 2012 across from Kilroy's Sports Bar. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that? I was just wondering if the panel could address that, the guns, mental health, et cetera. Okay. Jody, you... All right, you- thanks. Sure. And so um, Reddington had his weapons taken away after he was found with a rangefinder and some weapons on top of a garage across from Scotty's. And um, he had obviously had sort of this obsession with Lauren Spear and he tried to get his weapons back. Um, he essentially had a pickup truck full of weapons in his house. And um, so various legal procedures ensued and he finally succeeded in getting his weapons back, you know, six years after the fact um, this year. And it was a controversial wow. decision. And so mm-hmm. I think, too, you know, um, and this is part of the conversation we need to have. When do guns get taken away and when do they get restored? And so yeah. we have a high burden eventually to take them away. We can take them away in the short term if we know that someone really does pose a danger to themselves or to others. But then we have to have the due process procedures there to give them back if this uh, judgment is not warranted or when an individual is no longer a danger. And we can't say that once a danger, forever a danger. On the other hand, we have individuals who, uh, like the Noblesville shooter, who are, you know, was 13 when he committed the shooting, uh, is committed to the um, custody of the juvenile uh, institution here in Indiana, and will be able to get a gun back when he turns 18. Yeah, well, Darren, thanks for that question. I, I wouldn't have remembered Robert Reddington's name. I remember the, the case now that that uh, Jody describes it. This sort of goes in, sort of segues into the idea of red flag, the red flag law that Indiana has. Um, 
Kurt, can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's just the red flag. And Jody's probably more an expert on this than I am. But uh, the red flag law is just an indication. It, it is basically what it says. Do you see something that indicates that there's probable behavior that's going on now that could lead to something else that would be harmful to our community or to our society? So red flag goes up. Who do I talk to? So you notify your authorities, your local law enforcement. They get involved. Uh, uh, the legal process starts. And, and hopefully, if there is some type of probable cause to believe that, hey, this person or that person should not have a firearm, they can get those away from them, and, and really in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, in Indiana, it it's, goes through the police and the uh, legal institutions and other situations uh, in other states. You actually have family members who can move directly to a judge. And so, you know, that's part of the due process safeguards we have here in Indiana. Is that a relatively new law in Indiana? It is. 2005, I believe. Okay. But we've heard a lot of talk about this, I just feel like, in the last week. So mm-hmm. is, is it, do most states not have something like this? Most states don't. Um, in Indiana, it was called the Jake Laird Law and was passed after an officer got shot in That's line right. of duty from someone who's, who met all the criteria for red flag laws that you could possibly have. Um, Cruz in Parkland was another example, and Florida had a red flag law. But in order for them to be useful, people have to use them. Exactly. Yeah. So are they used very much at all? I would think more than you would think. Um, but, but like Jody was saying earlier, once a danger, not always a danger. So that's, that's what we're up against now. How long do we keep those weapons from a person? I mean, is it for life? Are they, I think everybody is physically, that, that is physically capable of using a weapon, could use a weapon. But do we keep those weapons away from them for life? What behavior do we have to have documented to make sure that they, they stay away from them? Mm-hmm. It's very tough. So our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, I I think uh, we want to bring Leslie back into the conversation and and talk again about, um, you know, fears that people have. That's, you know, we're trying to, to... attack this issue from various points of view. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to solve the issue today about what happens with mass shootings, but there's a lot of impact. We had uh, Sean on the phone before who was close to it, and he, his life's been affected. Um, we're talking about children. You know, in, in terms of, of, you know, psychiatry, what can, you know, what can we do to make children feel more secure? And we've already addressed a couple of things, but can you add, add a little bit to that? Yeah, so um, I think um, helping to emphasize the things in their lives that are um, secure and safe, um, doing what we can to promote um, to promote things that, that, that are stabilizing and um, comforting to them, whether those are um, activities or school-related things or, you know, family-based activities, um, you know, staying focused on the positive um, sometimes actually helping uh, young people get involved as activists actually um, pr- promotes a sense of control, um, that they have an ability to influence things. Um, that's more true probably for older adolescents than younger folks. But, um, but it is a real challenge because, um, you know, these are, this is reality, and it's a scary time for, for all of us. And hopefully this won't always be this way. But right now it feels like, boy, it's hard to imagine what, will, what it will take to to change the narrative. So um, I think for younger kids, kind of like I said earlier, um, kind of shielding from them from this is not a bad idea when they're, you know, just too young to understand. Um, there's no reason to inundate a young person with, you know, nonstop news coverage of very traumatic events um, that they're having a hard time processing. Um, of course, as they get older, they're, they're going to see that, they're going to understand it, and they're um, having a safe space to talk it through and have adults they trust around them to help them process it. Um, supportive others. I mean, and then I'm, I'm just talking about people who are watching it on the news, not that are people who are actually involved in those situations. But um, it's um, it's a tough time, I think, for for kids. And they're, uh, you know, we're seeing signs of increased stress um, from kids. Um, and some people say, well, that's because they have increased information from social media. You know, they're concerned about global warming. They have, you know, this mass shooting situation happening. I mean, there's just a lot of issues right now, maybe more so than in other generations, um, where so we are seeing um, higher rates of mental illness and suicide attempts, for example. Mm-hmm. Wow. There was this incident yesterday at a Walmart in Springfield. I don't know if you all read about that, but a man showed up with a loaded gun, and then he was wearing a bulletproof vest. And 
just had a shopping cart and just started doing it. So I, I am curious. I mean, all three of you, I think, could react. Like, what is the responsible way that we should be talking about this so you don't have these sort of copycat things where police don't, haven't even figured out what was his real intention, but he caused total chaos, obviously. Part of the conversation is that we have laws and we have things that are legal and illegal and we have norms. And it's not normal to see a fully armed man um, carrying a semi-automatic rifle with, I think he also had 100 rounds of ammunition and a cell phone when his, and was blaring something. That's not normal to see. And so I think, you know, we all, contrary to what the law says, um, the police can show up and investigate. They don't have to make an arrest. But if we believe in our gut that something is wrong, we have an obligation to speak up and say something. Well said. Absolutely. You know, seeing that yesterday, especially in the climate that we're in, it just happened at a Walmart. And now we see this guy show up with a bulletproof vest and a long gun, whatever it was. That's not normal. And if he doesn't expect to get tackled and, and called 911 on, I mean, he is he's far out there than, than I am comfortable with. So um, I, I promise you that that person is going to attract attention and not in a good way. Yeah, I guess I when when we're talking about this shooting in El Paso or something like how should we be talking about it? So people people don't want to go out and do that to get attention or whatever his motive was. Like, what are what are we doing wrong that that's the way? he reacts to that. I think we have to condemn those actions as a society, too, because, you know, I think that most um, of my friends who are gun rights and who do carry, they agreed that that was stupid. And they said, you know, those are the people who are going to get the good guys with guns uh, targeted for additional measures that we really don't need. Well, and he had every capability to pull something off. That's that's the thing. I mean, everything was there. All his resources were in order. I mean, he didn't show up with a plastic orange colored toy gun. He showed up with a real gun loaded with with body armor. So, I mean, he that the reaction that was had was fantastic from what I understand. I'm just hearing about this mm-hmm. story before yeah. I came in to the studio, but apparently it went really well to, to subdue him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do we see, um, and this is a question perhaps for Leslie, what do we say to our children when we go in and we see someone who is um, engaging in maybe Second Amendment expressivism? Right. Or carrying a weapon that they might not feel comfortable seeing. What conversations do we have with our kids there? Mm-hmm. Right. And that, you know, that's going to depend a lot on on the family stance mm-hmm. on on firearms, I think. Um, um, I was in a store in Ohio a couple weekends ago with my kids and there was a guy with a gun. And um, I, ju- you know, they were, of course, immediately aware of it and noticing it. And um you know, my opinion was I'm not sure why we need, you know, I, I wasn't excited to see that happening. Right. And, um, you know, let's get away from him. This isn't something we want to be involved with. But I think that very much depends on the parents' view, right, of, of um, open carry and things like that. Absolutely. Um, I think that, yeah. So. I would encourage folks, you know, if, if you are carrying, don't open carry like that, especially in public. I mean, there's just, I don't know what you think your advantage is going to be if you if if you're telling everybody, not just telling everybody, but scaring people, what what is your tactical advantage as a police officer? You know, if I'm off duty and I'm with my kids, um, I, you can bet that I, I always carry. Uh, we, we've been taught. We've been trained. I have the resources. You know, if something happens, I will be able to do something, hopefully. Um, but I sure don't want the, the perpetrator to know that I have a weapon. I, you know, he's going to come to me first, and he's going to try and take me out first. So why... Why would you want people to know that you have a weapon? I, I don't. I don't understand that. I really don't. And you said expressivism. Maybe that's maybe that's key there. So we have just a few more minutes. If uh, you want to join us on the program, you still can. Eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Also at noon edition is our Twitter handle, and you can send us a question at news at indianapublicmedia dot org. So I have a, a quick question for Leslie, and I have a quick question for Kurt. I hope I hope they're quick. Um, with <laughs> Leslie, you know, I, I'm of a different generation. You know, we're talking about you know what children are thinking today, but I can remember growing up in an era when I was basically bombarded and taught to be afraid of the Soviet Union. You know, because there could be a nuclear attack at any time, and you know we had our drill weren't weren't uh, you know active shooter drills they were atomic you know attack drills where you get under your your desk at work so you know are things different now or have we just changed the thing that kids are afraid of 
Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue that there's always going to be something uh, going on uh, at a given point in time that, that can be frightening. Um, but I think it is interesting to look at different generations and how they respond. Um, so I think when we see, um, in, in some cases, the there's been research suggesting, you know, the need for firearms, especially among those who aren't, you know, in law enforcement, et cetera, um, is, is to some degree driven by anxiety, right? And so it's interesting to wonder um, what early childhood, mid-childhood, teenage influences, um, w you know, shaped the role of folks who later um, go on to, you know, have very strong opinions about the need to, to carry weapons, um, you know, in adulthood. So I think these, my point is just that there's a knock-on effect, of course, um, across generations. And so, um, you know, we have... Um, generations of people now um, who are maybe in their 50s and 60s, right, who um, are, uh, you know, grew up with that fear. And so we, we wonder, you know, what influence does that have on them now? And um, it's hard to know um, how all of those things will, will play out. But I think, you know, one argument is why we're having an issue with guns is due to um, generations of um, uh, people being fearful. So mm -hmm. I would argue they could be related. <laughs> And, Kurt, I just wanted to ask you, because we've talked some about, you know, gun control sort of in the abstract here, but I know that police officers, police um, organizations have come up with or have come out in favor of certain kinds of limitations. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, as far as being a police officer and, and, and representing the Indiana State Police as an agency, uh, we take a back seat to any type of opinion or, or um, uh, any type of uh, um, uh, uh, other than opinion. I can't think of another word for it, but, but we take a back seat to that, and, and we just go with what the legislation legislators have told us. Um, uh, we don't come out politically like that. You can imagine that would not be a good idea right. for us. Now, if FOPs and, and, and American uh, Association of Police Officers or Chiefs of Police, they do that, we leave that to them. Okay. Um, but, uh, but Fair we're, enough. Yeah, we're just, yeah. We're just here to, to keep people safe and, and enforce the laws that are in place. Fair enough, Jody. So I think that you can look at some forms of laws, obviously background checks. And, you know, one of the things that Mitch McConnell is open to now is closing uh, the so-called loophole between um, uh, private sellers, you know, sales that occur between private sellers or family members. And another is making sure that we have robust laws like red flags where the, when the emergencies show up, we can take care of those and on the front end and then deliver due process as soon as possible. Um, I think we can increase the context in which we talk about firearms, right? That um, there is lots of things that people agree on. NRA members, friends of the NRA, agree on background checks. And just because you take one step towards another law that will close a dangerous loophole does not mean that you're going to confiscate weapons. Mm -hmm. Bob had called in a bit, but wanted to ask his question off air. But it was, I think probably, Jody, this is for you. He asked, why not quote the Second Amendment? He says it's, Bob says it's not about selling machine guns. It's about state militia. Why don't we read the Second Amendment that way? I think that goes back into a whole like diatribe for I, I could give for about four hours on what the <laughs> militia doctrine means and things like that and and different takes on the Second Amendment and legislation that we've had. But I do think that, um, you know, the, the Second Amendment is often used to shut down discourse. And instead, I think it can be used to foster discourse about how the Second Amendment is one of a series of rights, does not get priority above other rights and must be read in context of them. And so certainly one of the rights that I think people have is the right to life and the right to comfort and security. And that's a right that's often not talked about. Um, and just an, as, as an example, if I go to my uh, friend and I say, well, you know, our kids are friends. Let's go to discuss a play date. And I feel like I should ask her about weapons she has in her house. I should not feel barred. I should not feel like that's impolite to do so. But yet I think those contexts exist in society. That's great that you brought that up. That's that's something that people did. I, I think nowadays they are, are more comfortable with it. But in the past, you know, you, that's such a private question. Why would you ask me that now? With what's going on, it's okay. People know. Hey, it's okay. And not just not just firearms. What else do you have in the house? You know, I mean, my kid is an explorer. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's going to get into something that may not or. Or if you go to a, a relative's house uh, where Uncle Jake uh, every day comes home and he puts his loaded firearm on the kitchen table without even thinking about it because there's no kids in his house. But my kids come 
and boom, it's there. And now what do we do? So something that you really have to be very, very informed about. That's a very good point. For, thanks for bringing that up. So we're, we're, we only have about two minutes to go in the program. So I guess I just want to give each one of you the opportunity to give sort of a closing remark that might you know, help us all get through uh, these times that are kind of difficult. You know, we're living in some challenging times. So I'm going to start with Leslie. Yeah, I guess I would say that from my perspective, suicide is um, our uh, a big, you know, front and center for mental health uh, clinicians, and um, we are uh, simultaneously really worried about guns falling into the hands of those who will harm others, but also more as happens more often if you look at the data, actually um, harm themselves. And so, um, I think that um, anything we can do to reduce access of firearms will will improve suicide as well as these other more rare mass shootings and therefore enhance the well-being of our kids over the long run. All right. Thank you, Kurt. I think we've come to a point now where we don't have the luxury of just going somewhere, leaving the house and in, you know, being completely relaxed. We just we just can't do that. We've got to be aware of our surroundings. We've got to take a look and see what's going on, whether that's at Little League, soccer, church, wherever it is, school. Make sure that you are aware of your surroundings. You know what's going on. And if you see something, say something. I know we say that all the time. And it's becoming cliche, but please don't let it. Because uh, I've had people tell me, well, I, just, I, I didn't know if I should call or not. Just call. Just call. What's I mean? A, a thirty-second phone call may save somebody's life. So please do it. Okay. Jody, and I'll just pull back. Seconds. I'll yeah. just pull back out into my context as a researcher. You know, we need better research on the causes of gun violence and the relationship between mental health and gun violence. And then we need to act on the basis of that research. I mean, we're in a situation now where we try to give felons back firearms in the name of the Second Amendment. You know, the DOJ closed the domestic terrorism office and Tucker Carlson said there's no such thing as white supremacy. So we need to have a trust in facts, a trust in those who produce them, and I think robust conversations in society. All right. Thank you very much. We are out of time. I want to thank Jody Madera from the IU Maurer School of Law, Kurt Dernal from the Indiana State Police Department, and Leslie Ann Halvershorn from the uh, IU Medical School. Thanks for being here with us today. For our engineer, Mike Pashkash, producer, Benta Boutier, and my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And the Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the 20th running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutRunCancer.org.